Um, last night, uh, I got back from a camping trip with me and my boys. I've got a seven and an eight-year-old boy, uh, Pete and Levi, respectively, and uh, we got back from this camping trip. You know, the trucks loaded down with stuff are coming back in, and we got into the house, and there's this moment that you realize when you step in to your house, uh, how clean the environment is in your home, and just how bad you smell, like, at the end of a camping trip. I mean, you just reek, man. Like, some of you guys in the military, you get it, you know, like, you can't wait to get home from the field, because the first thing you're going to do is get in that shower, right? Um, in this passage this morning, Paul is going to talk about uh, a new set of clothes, a new set of clothes that we get to wear um, so that like, we get to take off the old smelly, the old things, the old practices we used to walk in and put on something brand new in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. And so uh, if you've got a Bible, uh, grab it and meet me there in Ephesians 4, chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 4 verses 17 through 32. And uh, the main point I think God is calling us to see in this passage this morning is that God calls us to walk in a new way, a new way of thinking, a new way of being, and a new way of living, and we'll see it together in the passage through verses 17 through 32. If you grabbed one of those black hardback Bibles on the table as you came in, please accept that as our gift to you this morning. We love the Bible here as Veritas Church. The name of our church even means truth. And we believe this is where the truth of God is found in Christ Jesus. So let's look at the scriptures together this morning. Ephesians 4 verse 17 says this. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry. Do not sin. Then let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as it is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 30, we do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. With, along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray again for God's help, church. Jesus, we come to you again as we often do as we come to the scriptures. Um, God, may we daily confess that we are in need of your help to understand your word to us, and to have the scriptures be illuminated to us, to have the truths of your word be not only be heard by our ears, but form and shape our hearts. God, I pray that this morning the truth of your word would be evident. 
in the heart of every believer. God, I pray that you would bring dead hearts to life this morning, bringing new life and new faith to those who need it. Uh, that those who maybe are now walking in, in ways of darkness and foolishness in their, in their uh, understanding because of their hardness of heart would have their hard hearts changed into new ones this morning. God, I pray um, that as we consider the things that you have for us in your word and consider the new ways of, of walking, of, of living and being, um, God, I pray that you would change us by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning, that every, every follower of Jesus this morning here would be reminded of the good news of the gospel, be reminded of the, the, the deceitfulness of sin and its effect in our life, and then also, God, be drawn into this new life that you welcome us into. We pray that together in Jesus' name. Amen. Just as a bit of, of review, um, just to kind of orient ourselves in this passage of the scripture in Ephesians 4, uh, just to remind us of what we talked about last week together. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul makes this transition from what the church is, uh, who, who they have been made in Christ Jesus, to what they're kind of called to do now as they've been brought together as the family of Christ. At the beginning of chapter 4, he calls them to walk in a manner worthy calling that we, they've been called, and it has something to do with their character and the way that they respond to one another, uh, that they have this shared confession and this shared calling, and that the way that Jesus holds his church together is he gifts the church with the gifts of each other to serve one another within the body, and in particular, the gift of the word ministries for the church, that, that what I'm doing right now as one of the pastor elders in this church proclaiming the good news of the gospel is one of the primary ways that the church is equipped with the good news of the gospel because God has not just called me to ministry as a full-time uh, person that's on staff at a church. He's called every single one of us into ministry as a part of his church. So me doing my job equipping you guys as the saints equips you for the work of the ministry so that we can all go equip and, and spread the good news of the gospel to wherever we go. And finally, the result of all of this and the goal of the church is that it might grow in spiritual maturity so that the whole spiritual organism of the church would grow itself up in love. Then Paul comes to this passage in 17 through 32 where he, he, he changes the tone just a bit it begins with verses 17 through 19 again. He says this, Now I say and I testify. He's testifying of this truth in the Lord. And he says, You may no longer, this command, that you may no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They've got broken minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Stop there at the end of verse 18. Paul says here that the Gentiles, and he's using this in a very general sense, he's not talking about the Gentiles that are a part of that local church there in Ephesus. He's not talking about them because he's talking about a spiritual reality that these Gentiles, these are, this is a general sense of the term, that those who do not follow Jesus have darkened mind, a darkened understanding. They walk in the futility of their minds. Their minds are broken. That means the, their spiritual reality is that they are alienated from the life that is in God. And then if the doctor was to give them, uh, like, uh, this is the result of your test, this is the reason why you're sick in the life of a Gentile, it's that they have a broken heart. They have hardness of heart. This is what Paul says at the end of verse 18. 
This is a reality, that those who don't worship Jesus cannot worship Jesus because of their hardness of heart. Paul would write elsewhere in Romans chapter 1, verse 21 like this, doubling down on the same point. For although they knew God, that means all humans, all peoples, they did not honor them, honor him as God or give thanks to him, but, because, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, all of Scripture is in accord with itself in this sad, star, sorry state of us before Christ. That those that are outside of the body of Christ, outside of salvation provided by Christ alone, have darkened understanding. They're separated from the life of God, and they have hard, broken hearts to see the problem of this futile thinking actually resides in the heart. We might think of uh, in, our, in our Western minds that like everything is about understanding. If you just know the right facts, you'll do the right things. But that, does that actually play out in your, in your normal life? Just because you know like that dessert is not going to be good for you, like if you have it again and again and again, does it stop you from in, engaging? At least like every single time? No, we're not robots. We're not robots. We're driven by something other than just facts. Right? We're driven by our desires. We're driven by our loves. And the Bible consistently tells us that our problem isn't our heads, it's our hearts and what resides within it. And this is, the Bible says that and teaches from the beginning of the Bible all the way through that the problem of the heart, the reason why the heart is hardened, it is hardened by sin. See, sin was introduced by our first father, Adam, when the, he rebelled against God along with the, his work, the, the first woman, Eve, and they, get, they, they, they gave themselves to the idea that God is holding out on me and I deserve something else. I'm going to take things into my own hand. I'm going to think pridefully about God, accept the lie that God is holding out on me and take something that isn't mine. I'm going to take something that I should not have. See, sin, as defined by the New City Catechism, verse, uh, uh, section 16, is defined like this. Sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created, rebelling against him by not living without reference to him, or not being or doing what he requires in his law. And here's the result of sin. The result of sin is in our death and in the dis integration of all creation. That means the death of everything else. That our sin doesn't just do something to us in our individualistic little worlds we live in all the time, just kind of addicted to our phones. We think everything's about us, but no, our sin permeates from just us into everything and infects everything else around it, resulting in death. See, we don't sin because we don't know enough to reject it. We sin because we have hearts that love the wrong things. We have hearts that love the wrong things. James K.A. Smith wrote a, uh, a book with a, a simple but profound title that just simply states, you are what you love. You are what you love. In verse 19, Paul says this about the result of what this produces in the Gentiles. It says they have become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, to greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. Verse 19 tells us what becomes of those who remain in their darkened minds and in their corrupted loves. You become callous towards sin. 
And like, a, and like a ravenous addict, you've got to find new ways to get your fix. You've got to find new ways. You're greedy. That means like you, you literally don't think that there's enough sin to go around to get at the things to, 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 to fix yourself with or to please yourself with. This is a bleak picture, is it not? Those of us that are stuck in our old thinking are like strung out addicts hopelessly giving ourselves to things only take from us, that only rob from us. Maybe if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you remember this in your life. You remember the stage of being without hope, having a broken mind, a broken relationship with God, a broken heart, and broken relationship with others, fighting literally with others for ways to please just yourself. Maybe if you, some of you are still there. Maybe you are, are here and you're like, Man, I'm just testing the waters, what this whole Jesus thing is about, what this whole church thing actually offers. What does it actually say? Through this passage, I hope you'll see that the offer is on the table, that there is actual hope in Jesus. That because Paul doesn't stop here, he reminds us of the new way of thinking, not just the old ways, but the new way of thinking that we now have in Christ. He says this in verse 20. Verse 20, but it is not the way that you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Paul says that new thinking kind of requires going to school. This idea of we've got we to fix the way that we think about stuff. We've got to learn a new way. See, in the passage, it says you learned about him. You, you heard the gospel proclaimed, kind of recalling what we heard last week about the apostles. But what they do? They were the first people to proclaim the good news of the gospel, the, the consistent witnesses as through the scriptures by which we know what the good news of the gospel is, the litmus test of knowing what is good news and what is not. We heard the gospel proclaimed. But when you first heard the gospel, you didn't stop there if you actually became a follower of Jesus. You began to be taught in him. This continual teaching, like the other word ministries that we saw last week, these other people within the church, roles like me, roles within the church of people proclaiming the good news of the gospel and teaching you in it, this need for teachers within the church. And then Paul says there's this exclusive truth claim here, that Jesus has cornered the market on truth, because he is truth. Jesus is truth. He says, as the truth is in Jesus. So in Jesus, we all get the best news we could ever imagine. Because in Jesus, we actually get the offer of a new life. Maybe you feel like you've ruined your life. Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, there is so much garbage in my past there's no way I could ever escape the realities that I'm up under spiritually. There's no way that God could ever love me. There's no way that I could experience a vibrant community of people to come around me, love me, support me, and point me to something greater. But in the good news of the gospel, this is the offer. You can walk in the newness of life. You can get a reset button on life. Yes, there will be consequences that you cannot avoid in this life for certain decisions, but in Jesus, you get a spiritual reset button. Because of Jesus' death in your place, 
You get your sin forgiven. You get new life, and you get a new self. Old self, deceitful desires, we get to take those things off. We get to leave those things behind us like a dirty pair of clothes. Belief in Jesus means being renewed in the spirit of our minds also. Because now we can believe right things because we have a new heart and new desires and new loves in Christ. And this brings us to the second point that Paul wants to make here. We're going to walk in this new way, this new way of being. It requires a new you that he's already said is there. Look at verse 24 again. Verse 24, Paul writes this. Put on the new self. Notice that is a command. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness, in holiness. This is a short verse, but it has huge implications. Paul calls us, he commands us even, to put off the old self and to put on the new self. And what this means is that who we are and who we once were, we now die to. We now release. We now take it off and put it away. We cease walking in sinful ways and instead embrace the new righteousness given to us by grace from God. Remember the uh, camping trip that I went on last night, right? Uh, we got home, you know, it's just, uh, we, we get inside, you know, the, my wife's got candles burning, the house is, looks amazing, whatever, and we come trudging in with all our dirty bags, you know, right next to the door. We create a big mess. My kids are like you know, slumbering, uh, sleepwalking to the bed or whatever, and I have to like literally strip them of the, the clothes that they're wear, wearing because they're going to pass out straight into the pillow after I get their pants off, right? And so there's a spiritual reality that the cleansing that we experience in Christ is something that, that, that we cannot do ourselves. We do not earn our righteousness. We do not earn our holy status before God. We don't earn our salvation in any way. But there is a reality in that, like, the next morning when they got up this morning, when I saw them in the hallway, they weren't wearing the clothes that they took off last night. They weren't wearing those same dirty clothes that were stripped off of them. They didn't choose to put those nasty socks back on, right? This is what we are called to in Christ. We are called that because Christ accomplishes the work of salvation, we get to play our role in our transformation. As we are, you know, by this power of the Spirit, transformed to one degree of glory to another, this, in, in some senses, we have to choose walking in that new life that has been granted to us by Christ. And this is what call, Jesus, call, followers of Jesus are called to do. Put off the old self and put on their new selves. So what is this new self like? How does this car drive, right? Like, how do we get, what, do we, what does it do? Verse 24 tells us it's craft, craft, created after the likeness of God. So this newness of life, it harkens back to language, back to Genesis, created in, in the image and likeness of God. But are we already created in the image and likeness of God already? Do we not bear the image of God in the Imago Dei? Of course we do, right? So what is this new creation of new life? See, Romans elsewhere, uh, in Romans, uh, Paul would say that there's now a new first humanity now created in the person and work of Jesus. That in the first creation, in Adam, all die, but now in Christ, all should live. And in Christ, we are made like that man, 
Not the sinful man, but the new man, the new man Christ Jesus, and after his likeness, in holiness, and in true righteousness. We have right standing before God because Jesus has right standing before God. We get holiness, get clothed in his holiness uh, to be completely sin-free and set apart because Jesus is completely sin-free and set apart. Now, some of you guys are probably knee-jerking already, like, okay, that's great. I'm glad, I'm glad Paul says that, but there's one big problem here. I keep sinning. I don't know if you're here in the room this morning, you're a Christian, you figure out some way to not sin anymore. Congratulations, you're the new Messiah, right? It's not me. That's not you either, right? There was only one God-man. His name is Jesus Christ. There was only one sinless, and that was Jesus. See, as Christians, we all experience this. None of us are sinless. And what we don't do is just embrace it and say, well, if I'm going to sin, and like I sin, uh, you know, like uh, David would say, it's ever before me, I should just accept the reality. Just keep going and go on sinning so that grace may, may abound. No, that's not what we do as followers of Jesus. We acknowledge this reality. See, in the gospel, and what Jesus did on the cross to reconcile us both to God and to each other, he broke the power of sin. The power of sin is broken forever. That work is complete. The power of sin is broken over you, follower of Jesus. But there is another reality. The presence of sin remains. This work is not completed yet, but it will be completed. It won't always be this way. You won't always feel like, gosh, I just can't believe I engaged in that sin again. Gosh, I can't believe I blew up on my kids like that. I can't believe I said that to my wife. I can't believe I did this or that. That reality won't always be there because Jesus is going to come back and he's going to make all things new. He's going to complete the work that he started. So that means Every single day, you get up, you put your pants on, and the same way you put those pants on, you realize that you're putting on the new self, and you choose to put off the old self. This is a continual thing that we walk in as followers of Jesus. See, my salvation is complete in Jesus, steadfast and secure, but my struggle with sin will be there for the rest of my life. See, this is good news. As we try to relate to one another in the church, because there's not two statuses of Christians in the church. There's not the perfected ones and the unperfected ones. It's not just like chapter 3. There's Jews in the church and there's Gentiles in the church, and these might be better than the other. No, there's none of that. There's no hierarchy in the church. We're all the unfinished ones. We are all works of pro in progress here. We are all ones that are in need of grace. Now, today, and until Jesus comes back and makes all things new, none of us are perfect. Then the other side of that coin is we all need each other to walk in the new way of thinking, to walk in this new way of being. We need each other to say, man, I need to remind you that you, you, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I, you, we need each other to live in this new way of being, of saying, like, yeah, it is your job to fight sin and not, not give in. I'm going to be there with you, brother. I'm going to fight alongside of you. I'm going to pray for you. God has made you new in Christ, and part of that means walking in holiness. That brings us to Paul's final point in this passage, that God calls us to walk in this new way of living, and in particular with each other in the church. And this is how Paul finishes 
and we will finish our time with verses uh, 25 through 32. Let's look at verse 25 together. Uh, what Paul's going to do in this section, he's going to list some things that are kind of going on within the church. Uh, namely, like, I'm guessing these are things that were big deals in this church. And surprise, surprise, they're big deals in every church. <laughs> like for all time, for every generation. Like these are huge matters of significance. And they're really relatable because none of us could say, yeah, I'm done with that sin. You know, I, I, I'm past dealing with that particular sin at, at all. And what Paul's going to do is give this really logical argument that I think flows from this new place of thinking and living and being. Let's look at verse 25. It says, therefore, this is like a, because of all I've said beforehand, having put away falsehood, this is an assumption here by Paul, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You see Paul's logic here? Paul's saying here, because you have this new mind and heart, this assumption, you're a follower of Jesus here. You have a new mind and heart. You should change the way you live because of this truth of a spiritual reality that's already true about you in Christ Jesus. Look at this. This new way of thinking, having put away falsehood. You've put it away. You have this new mindset in Christ. And it assumes you've already done it. Now you're going to live it. You're going to speak the truth with your neighbor because... We are members of each other. There's a spiritual reality that's going to build up, like Paul said in the passages before, so that the whole body grows itself up in love. The point of ceasing from sin, the point of fighting sin, is not just for you. The point of fighting for sin is for me. And for every single one of us here in this room that call, that's a part of this body, we need each other to fight, both individually but for one another. The point is not that you would arrive as an individual at the gates of heaven and say, I'm now ready to go in. No. We arrive. We, we, we come into heaven as one collected body, a beautiful bride, as what the New Testament writes, put, come together by Jesus. We'll see later in the letter that the way that Jesus relates to his church is the one whom he cherishes, the one whom he cleanses, the one whom he gives his time, attention, and energy to to make sure that she is cleansed and perfected so that she might be presented to himself in splendor and in beauty. That's Jesus' church. We must see each other as part of that as well. Your own holiness, your own fighting sin means something for your neighbor that's sitting beside you. So how do we do this? How do we get to some of the practicals of just, you know, having put away falsehood, speaking truth with each other? So super obvious, right on the surface. Surprise, surprise. Don't lie to each other. <laughs> right there in the Ten Commandments, right? Don't lie to each other. It's the way that this might work out is maybe you're a part of a small group here at the church. You're a part of a community group or Bible study. You know, you've got a one-on-one -on -one relationship with someone in the church. And you've actually said, hey, I need help following Jesus in this area. Can you ask me about it? And you actually tell the truth when they follow up with you. You actually tell the truth, yeah, I, I blew it in this area. Or, man, praise God. Jesus has kept me from this this week. Will you, will you rejoice with me? That's my favorite prayer is to pray. In a small group setting, it's just like, man, Jesus has done a work in you. Jesus is delivering you from this particular thing. Let's praise God together. And when it is the, the case that it's like, man, we got to go to the cross of Jesus and repent of this sin, we need to help, help each other kind of take off those old clothes and walk in the newness of life. Man, that's what we do with one another. Part of this looks like speaking the truths of the gospel to one another. Not just 
not lying to one another, but proactively speaking truth to one another. Not just when someone says something wrong. That's when it's easy to say something true or something corrective, right? If something's coming out of, out of their mouth that's wrong, and we're like, okay, let me cut that down, and we end up cutting the person down instead of the thing that they're believing that's wrong. So building each other up in love by speaking the truth looks like this. When someone says, man, I just feel worthless. Like, I feel like God's given up on me. Like, my life feels like a train wreck. Yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but everything's falling apart. You get to come in with the good news of the gospel on your lips, and what you get to say is, no, you are loved by God. You are God's beloved. You're his cherished child. Don't you dare think that he has given up on you. He will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Also, too, if a brother or sister is in sin, it's your job, it's your responsibility. Yeah, we're, it's like Jesus gave the parable about the speck in, in your eye and the log that's, I mean, the log that's in your eye and the speck in your brother's eye. You gotta remove the logs, so you take out the speck. Yeah, that's the posture of humility that we go to one another. But we still go. We still go and say, man, this area of your life, you're, 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 you're walking in sin here. Let me, let me walk with you. Let me pray with you. Let me like, come alongside you in this particular area, and that must be done with all humility. See, we get to say to one another that God is for you and not against you. This is what Hebrews would say like is going to be the work of encouraging one another, stirring one another up to love and good works until the day that Jesus comes back. Look at me at verse 26. Paul's going to talk about anger. Mm, we all love talking about anger, don't we? Verse 26, he says, Be angry, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. See Paul's thinking here. He says, Be angry and do not sin. So that means there's two different types of anger here. There's anger that does not express itself in a sinful attitude or behavior, and there is sin that is had when you express anger in a sinful way or just an attitude and a disposition. And Paul says that the way that you should change your living is that you should not let the sun go down on your anger, not literally like 24 hours like from something bad happening. You don't let the sun go down until you make it right. That is a new way of living. How often do we just like let things fester? How do, all, how, how do we just like, you know what? I'm going to let that simmer for a little bit. You know, I'm just going to wait until the emotions cool or whatever. No, Paul says that the disposition that we should have our heart disposition here, the way of living, is not letting the sun go down on our anger. That's really hard to walk out. We would rather be complacent. And, but the spiritual reality here, too, is where I think Paul really kind of shows what's at stake. He says, give no opportunity to the devil. See, there is this spiritual reality that a lot of us don't like to think about, in that our sin has not only like physical repercussions, maybe even like if you do something horrible, you actually steal something from something uh, somebody nowadays you murder somebody you're going to jail like there's going to be like real world consequences for that stuff we don't really like to think about the spiritual consequences of sin see paul talks about the spiritual consequences in saying that there's no opportunities that we should give the devil the devil is a demonic spiritual uh, creature he's a fallen angel that wants to use your sin to create massive disunity massive damage, and primarily to relationships with others. 
Satan could give a rip about stuff. He doesn't care about your stuff. He actually wants to give you more stuff so you become more complacent most of the time, right? You're so fat and happy that you don't want to do anything about it. See, Satan wants to destroy relationships. He wants to destroy marriages. He wants to destroy families and friendships. He wants to destroy the church. This is why anger is such a big deal. Anger, when it's given its end, will produce death, like Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Because of this reality, because of this spiritual reality, we must be committed to walking in this new way of living and thinking about the sin of anger. Yes, you can be angry and not sin, but to be sinfully angry, to let things fester, to let things not go on, will produce spiritual death. Verse 28, Paul keeps going. He's still cooking here. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So Paul says no stealing. And it's not just that. He thinks that you should labor using your own hands. You should be you know, gainfully employed. You should be doing something, but not just for the sake of it, so that you can what? Share. So you should be generous with other people. So the, the heart position of a follower of Jesus, those of us that are parents in the room or kids in the room, when we say, hey, uh, as when you hear your parents say, um, hey, don't do this thing, it's not most of the time that they just want you to stop doing that thing. It's that, that there's an actual productive thing that they want you to be doing instead. There's something that produces life and hope and goodness, not just doing something that they say is bad. Because the God of the Bible doesn't want you to just stop sinning because he hates sin. He wants you to stop sinning because it's actually killing you. It's, it's, it's sucking life off of you. It's the detriment of your own spiritual life. And so we are called to not, not just steal or not steal. We are called to be generous as followers of Jesus. Verse 29, he says, no corrupting talk. Many of us would quick, be quick to just say like, yeah, no cussing. And that's probably a good rule of thumb. You know, like probably shouldn't be cussing like a sailor in front of all of your unsaved friends. Not a good witness to Jesus. But Paul goes beyond that here. He says, only what builds up. The type of speech that should come out of our mouths is not destructive speech, but constructive speech. It's something that fits the occasion. Because the goal here, Paul says, is to give grace to those who hear. This is an other-focused thinking. It's thinking of what's better for my neighbor that might actually mean that I have to change something myself inconvenience myself, change of behavior for me so that my neighbor can live, so that those that are outside of me can be pointed to Jesus and newness of life in him. And then Paul kind of sums up in verses 30 through 32. Let me read these verses for us. In verse 30, he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This reality that our sin affects our relationship with God by whom you are sealed for by the day, for, uh, the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. See, Paul here does not shy away from the fact that our sin can affect our relationship with God. Now, you can be saved as a follower of Jesus and still be engaged with sin, and what that sin does is it causes the Holy Spirit to be grieved. How could it not grieve our God? 
and in whom we share this, this beautiful relationship with being indwelt by the very God of the universe, by the power of the Holy Spirit, how could our sin not grieve God? Paul does give us the hope that, that being sealed is a work of the Spirit, but he warns us that all these things, that bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, all these things must be put away because they do affect our relationship with God. This is a scary reality. And I don't want you to, to walk away here thinking that, man, if you sin in between here and the parking lot, that somehow you know, you've lost your salvation and that God's going to give you up and you're going straight to hell. No, that's not what this passage is saying. It's saying that the God who brought you into his family is grieved by your sin because it is killing you and it is offending him because he has clothed you in righteousness and holiness. It goes against what he's already done in you. You should choose to walk in a way that, that, that makes much of Jesus. It's good for you and good for your neighbor. And the wonder of this passage is not that we just be scared into right living. The wonder of this passage is that Paul is showing us the amazing opportunity put before us to actually walk in freedom from sin. The amazing reality that we actually get an option other than the dark and futile thinking that we once walked in. We get another option than just clamoring after the things of the world like everyone else to say, give me more, more, more of the things that are just going to take from me. No, we have another option given to us by the personal work of Jesus. He gives us the ability to clothe ourselves in this new way of life. And he roots it in the gospel. God has already done this work. Look at verse 32 again. It says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. See, the heart of the gospel is God's forgiveness for our sins. God's forgiveness, that there is no other way that we could be justified before a holy and righteous God other than the death of Jesus for our sins. Because in the gospel, what God has done through Christ is that he has laid our sin upon Christ, and Christ died for our sin as the sacrificial lamb to atone for us so that we could be seen as holy and righteous and restored before God. But not just that. He doesn't just get us back to zero. He allows us and partners with us to walk in newness of life, empowering us by the same Holy Spirit that rose Christ from the dead, now lives in us so that we can love and serve others with tenderness, with, with kindness and forgiveness towards one another because we have been forgiven in God. See, this new way of living is only possible through Jesus. If you're here not, and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the offer on the table. You can walk in this new way of life. If you repent of your sins and believe the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. For those of us that are here that are followers of Jesus, this is the path that Paul is putting before us. This, this way that's narrow. It's not wide and broad. It's not easy for us to walk in these ways and be in repentance of these sins. But there is a way that we can walk this with a new way of thinking, with a new way of being, and a new way of living. Let's pray that we would walk in these things together. Jesus, I pray that uh, this morning, um, in the preaching of your word, in the singing of your word, in the pray praying of your word, God, that you would do... Um, what you say you do as your, your church gathers together like this, God, that our affections for you would be stirred, um, that we would love 
uh, stir one another up to love and good works. Uh, God, that, that we would walk away having been challenged, uh, but also uh, much more than being challenged, being encouraged in the good news of the gospel. God, again, I pray that you'd bring dead hearts to life, uh, that you would bring um, hopeless situations, things that feel completely hopeless. Uh, would you spark hope in those things again because of the hope that we have in you, Jesus? Forgiveness with the God of the universe. <laughs> there's nothing greater than that. Um, there's nothing greater than the hope of resurrection that we have uh, in life beyond the grave. God, I pray that that hope that we have in those things in you, Jesus, um, would allow us to be able to have hope for the things in our lives and the places that it feels like we're hopeless. Um, we, may we believe this morning that we truly are not. God, help us to serve one another, point one another to you as we walk in these ways together as your body, church, uh, as, as a body. Uh, we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.